She grew up in the church, surrounded by God's people. Having a privileged background, she lacked most of the hardships that many of her peers would experience. And in a time of life when others seemed uh, to leave their faith behind, hers was an active faith. She was in worship every week, hearing God's words, hearing his promise and his word proclaimed. She was in a Bible study. She was being mentored. She led and she served, even for a season in a foreign country. There was energy. There was momentum. Those who knew her would describe what they saw in her as not simply a, a brief mountaintop experience, but a five-year buildup of activity and growth and service. And then, like a roller coaster finally coming to the top of its initial climb, she hit that first drop. And soon, what had been building over the last five years began to fall apart. A global pandemic hit. Circumstances grew harder. Gut-wrenching disappointments seemed to come one after another. And not just in her circumstances. Reports of unthinkable injustices seemed to come every other week. Meanwhile, the spiritual leaders that she had looked up to as role models in the faith began to falter. Their, their sin and their weaknesses began to show, often in very public ways. And not just those that she knew from afar, but those closest to her. And as those that she long imitated seemed to stop living like it was all true, the same thing was happening in her own life. Her once strong spiritual momentum began to weaken and to slow. Despite the things that she remembered proclaimed uh, by the spiritual leaders of her past, and as these unmet expectations built and built, she began to question the whole thing. Maybe she'd just been going through the motions all along. Because soon it wasn't just those that were supposed to teach and, and exemplify uh, the, the Christian life that had gone astray. She had too. And as the tension grew between what she had always thought that she believed and the way that she was now living, the temptation was not to doubt her attitude or the choices that she began to make, but to question the God who wasn't yet delivering the kinds of things that he'd promised. Maybe there's something in that story that you can identify with this morning. Maybe your spiritual life, maybe before COVID, looked one way and and somehow years later looks, looks different, but maybe not in a, in a good way. Maybe you too have felt disillusioned by the failings of those who are supposed to represent the best of God's people. Maybe the hardships that you've seen and how long that those have been going on have made you question if the God behind it all is really good, or loving, or just, or, or even there. And if so, you're not the first. Some 2,500 years ago, after living in exile in a foreign land, God's people had returned to the land of their fathers. Following the words of God's prophet and, and the promises of renewal that they proclaimed, the temple had been rebuilt, and, and worship and sacrifices were happening again. Momentum had been building. A revival of sorts had broken out among God's people. But then, some decades later, the exciting messianic promises of what was to come had not yet been realized. And the momentum from times past seemed lost. Apathy and disillusionment had set in. And, and many of the practices that led to the downfall of Jerusalem just a few generations before were being practiced among God's people. Even the priesthood had become corrupted. Worship was 
perfunctory at the best, just going through the motions, external only. And so one last time before the birth of the Messiah, God sent a prophet to his people. You see, the purpose of God's prophets was always to call the people of God back to living like the people of God. And the prophet Malachi, whose book we've been, we'll be looking at this month, is no exception. This morning, this new year, if you're seeking renewal, if you're seeking a fresh start spiritually, to gain back lost momentum, to reclaim what, what might have been left behind or forgotten in your faith, or maybe to find what transforms a, a going-through-the-motions kind of faith into a vibrant one. That's what God sent Malachi for. And before we can embrace the solution ourselves, we first need to understand the problem. And that's what we find. We look at the first chapter and a half of the book of the prophet Malachi. In your pew Bibles, it starts on page 1,487. This is God's word. An oracle, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, the Lord says, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated, and I have turned his mountains into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins, but this is what the Lord Almighty says, they may build, but I will demolish, they will be called the wicked land a people always under the wrath of the Lord. You will see it with your own eyes and say, Great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me? Says the Lord Almighty. It is you, O priest, who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? You place defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you bring blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you? Says the Lord Almighty. Now implore God to be gracious to us. With such offerings from your hands, will he accept you? says the Lord Almighty. Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. My name will be great among the nations from the rising to the setting of the sun. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to my name because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. But you profane it. By saying of the Lord's table, it is defiled, and of its food, it is contemptible. And you say, what a burden, and you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. When you bring injured, crippled, or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord. Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. And now this admonition is for you, O priests. If you do not listen, and if you do not set your heart to honor my name, says the Lord Almighty, I will send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have already cursed them, because you have not set your heart to honor me. Because of you, 
I will rebuke your descendants. I will spread on your faces the offal of your, from your festival sacrifices, and you will be carried off with it. And you will know that I have sent you this admonition, so that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord Almighty. My covenant was with him, a covenant of life and peace, and I gave them to him. This called for reverence, and he revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and nothing false was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and turned many from sin. For the lips of the priest ought to preserve knowledge, and from, my, from his mouth men should seek instruction, because he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty. But you have turned from the way, and by your teaching have caused many to stumble. You have violated the covenant with Levi, says the Lord Almighty. So I have caused you to be despised and humiliated before the people, because you have not followed my ways, but have shown partiality to matters of the law. There's a lot more going on in there than any one sermon can address. But big picture, what do we see here? Well, first we see the problem. In modern terms, we see an unrequited love. For those wondering, uh, Merriam-Webster defines unrequited as not reciprocated or returned in kind. And unrequited love is, is a one-sided love. It's not openly reciprocated. In fact, it may not even be understood as love by the beloved. They may not be aware of it or may consciously reject it. Simply put, the problem of an unrequited love is this. I love you, but you don't love we often hear the phrase today in the context of, of romantic relationships, but it also applies to the kind of relationship we see here between God and his people. Verse 2, Malachi gives voice to the people's thoughts about him, writing, How have you, God, loved us? It's like they were from here in Missouri. This is, as you know, the show-me state. Named so because in the 19th century, a Missouri congressman said in a speech, Frothy eloquence neither convinces nor satisfies me. I'm from Missouri, and you have got to show me. In other words, if that's what you say, prove it. Show me. And that, in essence, is the attitude of God's people here. The Israelites, I mean, they've had a rough time. Um, under prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, God had spoken of, of great things, but still, some 400 years before the arrival of the Messiah, many of those things had yet to come. Instead, as we learned from elsewhere in the Old Testament, they were facing prolonged drought and crop failure, economic hardship and political oppression. Even though they were worshiping their God, even though they were offering sacrifices again, even though they were apparently doing their part, God didn't seem to be upholding his end of the bargain. As a Old Testament scholar Douglas Stewart writes, the promise of the prophets who came before Malachi, rightly understood, were absolutely true, but wrongly understood, as they undoubtedly were in Malachi's day, they seemed like a cruel mockery. And so they asked, how have you loved us? In what way? Show me. From people's perspective, the, prof the problem was an unrequited love, and maybe you could identify with that sentiment. 
Some years ago, I, I met a pastor who was overseeing a, a nationwide research project. Uh, each of his research assistants were asking the same five questions. And the question they always asked last was this. If you could ask God one question, what would it be? And the most common response was some form of this one. God, if you're so good, so loving, why is my life so hard? Or as Malachi's generation might put it, how have you loved us? Can you show me? See, God's people see the problem as an unrequited love. God does not really love us. God is not upholding his end of the deal. Back when I was living out, out west, I, I met a woman uh, swing dancing uh, who was part of another local church and seemed to have lots of friends and, and always had a smile on her face. So I was surprised uh, a while later when I heard that, that she was struggling in her faith. Uh, she, as she might describe it, she had been living just as God commanded. Uh, she was faithful in worship. She was in his word. She was in prayer. But the thing that she longed for most, a husband, hadn't yet come. You could just imagine the, the words of, of lament. If God is real, and if I'm delighting in him, why hasn't he given me the desires of my heart? Later, I found myself talking with someone who had exactly what that swing dancing friend longed for, a husband. As a mother, she'd actually done the best uh, to grow her kids uh, God's way, uh, according to a book that, that she had read, only to see them take a little different path as, as they grew up. I can still remember her, her saying, God, I did my part. Why didn't you do yours? You see, one sign that our relationship with God is in need of renewal is when it becomes transactional. God, I'll do this as long as you do that. And when that happens, God's not really our God. He's, he's not our highest end. He's, he's the means to some other end. He's not someone that we love, but someone that we might use to get the thing that we really love. And yet, even if we do get that, that tangible thing that we want more than God, the reason why we want it is because there's some sort of deeper, intangible thing that we believe it will give us, whether it's status, security, fame, or, or a sense of, of power a control, respect, success, or, or accomplishment, whatever it is that we really love, whatever we think will satisfy us, that intangible thing, even if we were to get those things we really love, they can never love us back. It would just be another kind of unrequited love. But it's hard to see that when the thing that we're still longing for uh, is not there whether it's the things that we are longing for or the things that Malachi's generation was longing for. And so despite the fact that God says in verse 2, I have loved you, his people would challenge that notion. So what God shows through Malachi is actually the exact opposite situation. Um, as we see in the rest of our passage, it's actually the people who lack love for God. Maybe the best way to explain that is to tell you a story. In 2017, some of you maybe read about this, Nick Stafford from Cedar Bluff, Virginia, had a bill to pay. He apparently had purchased a lot of company trucks, and so he owed $2,987.45 in auto sales tax. When he called with a question about paying his tax, the customer service fell far short of his expectations. 
And so he went down to their office, and he paid his bill, down to the last penny in pennies. Five wheelbarrows full of pennies, 1,600 pounds of pennies, and not rolls of pennies either. Stafford paid 11 people to take hammers and break open the individual rolls of 50 pennies so that each penny would have to be counted one by one. It took their staff seven hours to count each of those pennies by hand. But to make them do so, he first had to not only pay those people, but buy those five wheelbarrows. In the end, it cost him an additional $2,000 to make sure that his bill was paid in the form of 298,745 unwrapped pennies. In an interview afterwards, when asked if it was worth the cost, he quickly said, absolutely, worth every penny. As someone with a very low opinion of the people that he brought those pennies to, he said, I think I proved my point, and that in itself priceless. He technically gave them what they were due, but in a form that communicated how he really felt about them. That's a picture of contempt, and that is what Malachi is confronting in God's people. Five times in this first chapter, we see some form of the word contempt used to describe the people's attitude towards their God. Contempt is, is basically the feeling that a person or a thing is, is beneath your consideration, worthless or deserving of scorn. It's, it's disregard for something that should be taken into account. And the first time we see Malachi using that word in verse 6, it's used in contrast to, to honor, which would be treating something as, as significant. So God declares, a son honors his father and a servant his master. Maybe going like, uh-huh, yeah, right, yeah, those things are good and right. That's, that's giving someone what they're due. Then God goes on and says, if a father deserves honor from his son and a master the same from his servant, how much more does God, the one who is greater than any father or master, deserve from his people? And yet, God asks, where is the honor? Where is the respect due to me? Instead, God says that they show contempt for my name. And to show them how they do it, God points to their worship. In the book of Leviticus, in chapter 22, God tells his people what it looks like to worship him, what, it, what offerings are acceptable and actually reflect his honor and, and their value of him. As they consider the animals in their herds, they were, they were animal owners, That's, that was their economy, God said, do not bring anything with defect, for it will not be accepted on your behalf. Do not offer to the Lord the blind, the injured, or the maimed, in other words, the animals that you wish would just disappear. People know what God will accept and what is actually worthless in his sight. And yet, God says in verse 7, you place defiled food on my altar, or polluted food, as other translations put it, essentially saying the Lord's table is, is worthy of contempt. It's not worth our consideration. Verse 8, when you bring blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Try giving him your leftovers. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you? Verse 9, with such offerings from your hands, will God accept you? 
You see that man with the five wheelbarrows full of pennies? He may have been showing contempt, but at least the pennies were worth something. What God's people were doing was more like wheeling in five wheelbarrows full of monopoly money, going through the same motions, but offering what was worthless. As one biblical scholar put it, what we give God reflects our true attitude towards him. While verse 14 tells us that God's name was to be feared among the nations, the reality is he wasn't even respected by his own people. Malachi shows us that God's people, to say the very least, did not love him. And where the love is absent, worship is just going through the motions. It's perfunctory. And in the words of verse 13, it feels like a burden. Whether it's corporate worship or personal worship or simply living according to, to God's commands, what's sometimes called all-of-life worship, worshiping God through our daily acts of obedience. And yet if we read those words in verse 13, what a burden, and find ourselves resonating with them, how does that change? I would love to tell you this morning that it simply comes from knowing more and having better doctrine, more theology. And while that, that can help, the people in Israel who knew the most, Israel's teachers, were the priests. And yet in verse 6 we read, It is you, O priests, who show contempt for my name. That whose God is rebuking here, that is who he calls out the most in our passage. None of these things could have happened without the priests neglecting their duties, failing to apply the things that they knew to be true and right and just. You see, simply knowing more did not change them. You see, if our true or orthodox beliefs aren't leading to a changed life or changed hearts, if our orthodoxy is a dead orthodoxy, what's lacking is love. And if that's the problem, if an unrequited love is the problem, if God is saying, I love you, but you don't love me, then what's the solution? God showing his love. God says in verse 2, I have loved you. In Deuteronomy 7, verse 8, God's love is cited as the reason that God brought his people out of slavery in Egypt in the Exodus. The event that was at the very center of their collective identity as the people of God. But it's not just that God loved in the past. In Jeremiah 31, God's everlasting love is cited as the reason that they were back in the land of their fathers at all. And to put it in perspective, God reminds them of Jacob and Esau. Both of Jacob and Esau were, were twin brothers, the sons of Isaac, the son of, of Abraham. Both um, fathered great nations. Uh, Jacob became the father of Israel. Esau, the, the father of, of Edom. And both were greatly blessed. And yet both the nations that they bore sinned in great ways. And so both experienced the consequences of their sin. God says in verse 3, Esau, I have hated and have turned his mountains into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. As the Old Testament scholar Jack Collins notes, for God to hate in this sense is not about animosity towards them, but is in reference to punishing their sin. Meanwhile, Israel went into captivity under the Babylonians and then later the Persian empires. Both experienced God's judgment, but Israel was restored while Edom never was. You might ask, well, was it because Edom was just worse than Israel? I mean, after all, there are multiple Old Testament 
pat prophets that talk about violence done to Edom, done by Edom, to their brother Jacob, to their brother Israel. Well, the record of the Old Testament shows that Israel had plenty of her own sins uh, to account for. God's people were no less guilty. They were no less worthy of, of judgment. And while they were both brothers and brother nations, God says in verse 2, Yet I have loved Jacob. One nation got the justice that they deserved. Another nation got the mercy that they needed. The difference was not their love, but God's love. What's often called God's electing love. By God's choice, it would be through Jacob's line that God would bring blessing to the world. And along the way, God had already shown his love through his covenants, through his promises to his people, the sacrifices that he had given them, the festivals to remind them about things like the Exodus. And now, their return after a 70-year timeout in exile. An exile that actually purged Israel of the idolatry that had plagued her so much beforehand, restoring her in that way. You see, in God's covenant love, even the consequences her sin is his restorative mercy. But his love for Israel is also seen in the judgment of the nations. As Douglas Stewart notes, God's judgment of Edom as, quote, the earliest, latest, closest, and most consistently hostile of all of Israel's enemies is a statement about more than just Edom. You see, Edom was often used by the prophets as a representative for all of the nations that were opposed to his people. The point, Stuart says, is that the will of, of any or all of Israel's enemies, including but not necessarily limited to Edom, cannot alter God's plan to redeem his people. You see, because of his love, God will deal with sin, both among the nations and among his own people. Maybe you're thinking, even the leaders? Yeah, especially the leaders. Israel's priests were supposed to be their, their teachers and exemplify what it means to live as God's holy people. And yet in chapter 2, verse 8, we read, But you have turned from the way, and by your teaching, you have caused many to stumble. God holds his wayward leaders responsible for the people's condition. In a sense, God is more grieved by the corruption of his people's leaders than even the people are. In chapter 2, verse 9, we see God's heart for those denied justice under his law. He ain't happy about that. He's not going to deal. He's not just going to let that go because in God's love, he is not indifferent to how the sins of those called to lead his people affect his people. Which is why in chapter 2, we see God pronouncing judgments fitting for what the priests had done if they don't return to him. Verse 2. Because they presume to bless the people of God, as, as if their defiled sacrifices had any value, God says, I will curse your blessings. Verse 3, because they polluted God with their offerings, he will figuratively pollute and disqualify them for service at the altar by spreading on their faces the, the offal, that's, that's the dung, from their rejected sacrifices. And since the dung was to be taken uh, away uh, from the sanctuary and burned as part of a sin offering, they too will be taken away, carried off, as our translation puts it. Verse 9, they despised and failed to give honor to the Lord's name, so God declared that he himself would cause them to be despised and humiliated before all people. 
God's love stands opposed to those who neglect his call to lead and care for his people. And yet even his warnings of judgment are a loving call to come back to him. And yet every time an Israelite presented a sacrifice, every time a priest offered it in the temple, they also beheld a declaration of God's love for them. You see, the temple sacrifices were meant to be seen as, as a substitute for the one who offered it. Because of their sin and the penalty of sin being death, each sacrifice invited the worshiper to consider this. If God were treating me fairly, I would be just as dead as this animal right here. But God has offered a substitute. God has given a substitute. While the people of Malachi's day were each given that message of love with every sacrifice, Today we have the privilege of seeing God's love in a way Malachi's generation never could. See, just like every sacrifice had to be perfect and spotless, the best that they had to offer, one day God would offer the same. You see, Jesus Christ came to this earth and lived a perfect, spotless, sinless life. When he began his ministry, this is how he was introduced. Behold, the Lamb of God, the sacrificial Lamb, who takes away the sin of the world. You see, the perfection that God required was meant to point not only to his own honor, his own worth, but to the perfect sacrifice that he would one day supply. When we read in Malachi 2 the declarations of what the priest's sin deserved, being carried away, despised, and humiliated, it actually foreshadowed how Jesus, as our great high priest, was treated when he offered himself up as our substitute on the cross willingly taking the place of not only his sinful people, but even their failed priests, even their leaders, if they would repent and come back to the lover of their souls. The Apostle Paul put it in Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Maybe you notice back in chapter 1, verse 11, that God says, my name will be great among the nations from the rising to the setting of the sun. That didn't happen because of the work or the offerings of those priests, but because Jesus, as the great high priest, came to offer himself, that all the nations might know a God who, in his love, doesn't offer the worst, but the best. Last month I was reading an Advent devotional about love as it retold the story of Abraham. After he and his wife struggled with years of infertility, one day, just as God had promised, his wife Sarah became pregnant. The birth of their son Isaac would have been the greatest day of their life. At a time when having an heir was, was everything, they finally had what they longed for. Until one day, God told Abraham to climb a mountain with his son and offer him as a sacrifice. You can only imagine the inner turmoil that, that he faced. God had already promised him not just an heir, but descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky through that heir. So Abraham figured, well, maybe God could raise the dead. When his son, carrying the wood for the burnt offering, asked his father, where was the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God himself will provide the lamb. First-time readers, the suspense had to be intense. Abraham clearly loved his son, 
Did he love God, the one who gave him that son? Now as the son lay there, tied up on the wooden altar, and the knife now raised in the air, a voice called out to stop him, saying, Do not lay a hand on the boy. As this devotional writer paraphrases, God saw the sacrifice Abraham was willing to offer and said, Now I know that you love me, because you did not withhold your only son from me. Friends, how much more, how much more can we look at his sacrifice on the cross and say to God, now we know that you love us, for you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from us. Friends, that's how an unrequited love becomes a life-transforming mutual love. That's where spiritual renewal begins. We come to love God, and we see how he first loved us. Let me pray for us.